0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to Darts and Letters. I'm Ren, a producer on the Darts team. This week we're exploring right-wing politics from a left point of view. We've been bringing you weekly-themed programming here on the New Books Network and revisiting some of our past favorite episodes of the show. It's all in the lead-up to the launch of brand new episodes of Darts and Letters here on the network starting in mid-September. If you like what you've been hearing from us over the summer, you'll definitely want to stay tuned. Today, we're taking a look at the mind of Russia's imperialist philosopher, Alexander Dugin. He has been in the headlines recently, after the death of his daughter Daria in a car bombing last month. Dugin has been exerting his influence on Russian politics for years, as a diehard supporter of Putin and of a broader, stranger view of the world and Russia's place in it. This episode originally aired in April of this year. Here's your host, Gordon Kadok.
0: From Cited Media, this is Darts and Letters. I'm Gordon Kadok. Today, the philosophy of the Russian bear. are fashionably late to this story in Ukraine, so I won't fill you in on every development, but the basic picture right now is this. Russia's war of aggression is not going exactly as planned. They've moved back a bit and shifted their strategy towards the Donbass. And in this retreat, people have discovered gruesome remains. So how do we make sense of this war? On a darts level, the question really is, how does Russia, and more particularly, how do Russian intellectuals make their case? Is there actually a philosophy of the Russian invasion of Ukraine? For that, we turn to the Russian far-right thinker Alexander Dugin. Recently on Al Jazeera Arabic, he said, this is a war of ideas. I quote, It's a war against global liberal elites who are trying to take over the world. We are fighting against the liberal world order in order to provide other nations and cultures with the right to self-determination. This far-right neo-fascist thinker is widely described as Putin's brain. Now I quibble with that because it's not exactly right. When you review the historical record, it's clear that Dugin was pushed out of Putin's orbit, at least officially. In the past, Dugin has actually been critical of Putin for not being hardline enough. But the war seems to have changed things. Since the war, Dugin has really become Putin's chief evangelist. And he is still one of Russia's most influential state philosophers.
2: We are not. The part of the global civilization, we are a civilization by ourselves. Huntington was absolutely right. Fukuyama was absolutely wrong. And we had no other possibility to prove that Huntington was right without attacking Ukraine. It's sad to say, but it's probably us, we start this conflictual situation in order to be heard.
0: Dugin is a Rasputin-like character in Russian politics. He started in a kind of counter-cultural neo-Nazi vanguard, but he ended up in the upper echelons of Russia's military and foreign policy establishment. When he was there, he wrote a hugely influential book in 1997. It's called The Foundations of Geopolitics, The Geopolitical Future of Russia. This ultra-nationalist tome is still used as a textbook for the Russian imperial vision. In the book, Dugin articulates this clash of civilizations vision. It's a vision of the West versus a new Eurasian bloc supported by Russia.
2: So that was one civilization basing on the materialist approach and strategically on the dominance overseas, on the colonial attitudes, against the other kind of civilization where totally different values were put in the center of the life. The dignity, military power, tradition, conservatism, uh, national interests, families, religion, Christianity, so modernity against the tradition and applying this methodology to Russia, I came to the conclusion that that explains everything that is now and will come. So from that moment, I deduced from this application that there will be the big war between continents. The Great War of Continents, so confrontation between sea power and uh, land power. Land power represented by Russia, by Heartland, and sea power represented by modern globalist, postmodern liberal West.
0: To understand more about Dugin and his ideas, and just how dangerous they are, we turn to Matt McManus. Matt is a political theorist and my go-to for understanding today's far-right thinkers. He's also a member of PillPod. That's a podcast on critical theory. They recently did an episode on Dugan, and I wanted to follow up on that episode and talk more with
3: Matt. Alexander Dugan is like what happens if you take Jordan Peterson, get him really messed up on vodka... And then just push him a few more degrees towards Nazism. (laughs) Stir it all together. It's funny. Sometimes
0: uh, he has almost a chameleon-like appearance. If you Google around, watch some videos, read some things, you may or may not actually see that. You kind of have to dig... Deep sometimes. Sometimes he has this sort of air of respectability, or at least tries to put that on. Could you tell me a little bit more about kind of his presentation? How does he sort of present himself to the world?
3: There's no doubt that he definitely is a mercurial figure. There are some who suspect that that might be deliberate on his part, others think it might just be pathological, but it definitely reflects itself in his kind of intellectual genealogy. So, just by way of background, Dugan really kind of came of age. Uh, In the era of Soviet collapse, it had a profound impact on his thinking, and he went through a a wide variety of different transitions in response to the end of the Cold War, everything from embracing the far right to flirting with the far left to uh, mysticism, spiritualism, and eventually settled on a kind of far right Russian nationalism that was probably really starting to take developed form in his late 1990s work uh, on geopolitics, which has been very influential. for most of the right in Russia, and for that matter, abroad. Since then, uh, he's kind of become known as Putin's brain. Uh, it's impossible to tell whether or not that's true. Definitely, Putin says some Dugan-esque things at points that make people suspect uh, that there is a relationship there. But you know, there's no doubt that he's a cheerleader uh, for Putinism, and he's had uh, a big impact uh, as well on the American and European far right, although a bit more of a cult one.
0: Before we get into the actual ideas, I did actually want to start there in terms of figuring out what his influence sort of actually is. Some of the journalism on it seems a little sloppy, sort of calling him Putin's brain, because some of the works that I've read, like uh, Marlene uh, Lorule, I might be mispronouncing that, but I mean, in her, she's a, a sort of a Dugan analyst, I guess you could call her, and in an. in uh, a chapter that she wrote, which I'll link in the show notes, she describes him as more out than in and sort of does actually chart a trajectory in which he is a critic of putin and gets kind of uh, sort of ostracized from at least the upper echelons of the kremlin at least on paper you said it's impossible but i mean what's kind of the best that we know in terms of how in versus how out and how direct a kind of causal relationship we can draw here if maybe that's just a too difficult a task. But what can't we say, I guess?
3: Well, again, a lot of this is highly speculative because the reality is that uh, very few of us have an ear in the Russian government. And those of us that do don't necessarily report back truthfully uh, about what's going on. Uh, But look, there's no doubt that uh, especially that 1990s work on global geopolitics with its various distinctions uh, was profoundly influenced for the Russian military and kind of set the stage for a lot of the country's geopolitical ambitions going forward. In terms of his later work in the fourth political theory, and whether or not that's had an impact on Russian politics or culture, again, that's much more speculative and difficult to say. It's impossible to chronicle whether or not Dugan is the one who's influencing the broader culture to adapt itself to his views, or he's just kind of assimilating uh, a lot of the material and a lot of the developments around him. And kind of regurgitating them in the kind of way that a state philosopher, as sometimes pejorative or they'd be called, would do. I'm personally given to believing that Dugan's emphasis on Putin is overstated. Putin, given his background and given his inclinations, never really struck me as somebody who, let's put it this way, was particularly attentive to philosophical developments or really cared that much about the ideological justifications for his various difficult interventions.
0: Well, certainly, what we can say—I mean, I watched a, an interview that he gave on Al Jazeera Arabic, and you know, he talked about this being a war of ideas against the global liberal elite, and he praised Putin endlessly, and basically said that we want him to be this like monarch to deliver us to our sort of our our, our grand destiny as a civilizational power. So, whether or not Putin is actually listening, certainly. At least at this junction, Dugin is one of the chief sort of ideologues and intellectual cheerleaders for what's happening in Ukraine.
3: Yeah, and I should just say to add on to that, right? Again, there have been a lot of different interpretations of Putinism. Some see him as a genuine ideologue, which would lend credence to the view that Dugin has influence on him, right? That he doesn't really see himself as kind of having a world historical mission that's associated uh, with the spread of Russian nationalism uh, and anti liberalism more generally. Other people associate Putin with a kind of stern realpolitik, very tempting when you think of the kind of Machiavellian orchestrations that he involved himself in for a long time. And they see a lot of the stuff that he appeals to when it comes to Russian nationalism and anti-liberalism as more or less just a smokescreen, uh, a kind of way to project soft power. But there's no doubt again that he echoes a lot of Dugan-esque points, probably because he thinks they're ideologically useful.
0: Yeah. I mean, on that point, like I was just watching a talk he gave and- Dugan gave, not Putin. And Dugan describes Putin as like uh, a totally like real politic thinker. This is just strategic. And this is just, in fact, in Dugan's interpretation, essentially an inevitable outcome of the principles that Dugan uh, deduces in the 1997 book, The Foundation of Geopolitics. Uh, which maybe is a good transition to talk a little bit about that book.
3: It's become this sort of textbook, right? Mm -hmm. My wife was actually the one who introduced me to his work because he has had an influence on geopolitics and geostrategy and geostrategic theory more generally, uh, even outside of Russia. Uh, Although, again, he's by far the most influential geopolitical theorist in Russia. And he makes a number of different distinctions in this book. One of the key distinctions he makes is between maritime power uh, and land power, where he associates the West and in particular, NATO now uh, with this kind of maritime orientation, this idea to kind of control global trade through different sea routes and to kind of influence the world through these soft power mechanisms that are very associated with the United States, especially since the latter half of the 20th century. This is contrasted with land power, which he associates with countries like Russia, where they have a lot of concrete military strength. And one of the things that he thinks is concerning about the world in the latter half of the 20th century is... In the battle between, um, you know, <laughs> what do they call it again? Uh, the whale and the elephant. The whale has been too triumphant uh, for a long period of time right now. And he calls for a kind of recalibration by establishing a Eurasian kind of union. What form this is going to take doesn't really say. You know, it gives a few different speculations. But the idea, of, you know, in principle, would be that Russia, China, and a number of the other Soviet bloc countries that kind of broke away would reunite to serve as a challenge uh, to American hegemony. And this, of course, would entail challenging it in more conventional ways, trying to become more wealthy, prosperous, and militarily ascendant. But he does also express that it would mean challenging it ideologically, which would mean, of course, confronting liberal democracy at a philosophical level. Now, his argument for why it is that we should confront liberal democracy in these early works isn't as, I don't want to call it refined, but developed, let's use that term, as it becomes in, say, the fourth political theory, which is probably the book that he's most well known for in the West, uh, because it's kind of a manifesto against liberalism and its decadence and uh, value neutrality or nihilism, however you want to frame it.
0: So it's interesting hearing you uh, describe this book, because it does seem to be, it's sort of expunged of the wacky stuff, because you you look at his intellectual biography and before 1997, I mean, he's he's part of this sort of countercultural dissident group called the Yazinsky Circle, which are these kind of ironic, far-right, you know, the satanic worshipers, occultists. You get kind of into the domain of the sort of postmodern conservatism and traditionalism, which we'll talk about in a little sec here. But in in the foundations of geopolitics, do you see any of that?
3: Yeah, definitely, right? You can already see this strong desire to confront Western or sea power for its own sake, uh, not just because he thinks it's geopolitically inevitable. And here you can contrast him with somebody who, like Samuel Huntington, for example, right? Huntington, people might recall, around the same time, I think it might have even been 1997 as well, released a book, The Class of Civilizations, where he predicted that the new geopolitical order was going to take the form of this confrontation between the West and no, you can pick your target. He said that the Islamic world was the most likely candidate. But there's this really realist undertone to things where Huntington says, it's too bad, this is probably going to happen. But, you know, it's inevitable, right? This is what I see as occurring. Dugan is much more expressed about the fact that he thinks that a confrontation between a kind of Eurasian land power and the Western maritime power is a good thing, both because the world needs to be balanced and also because he doesn't care very much for Western liberal values. Uh, he doesn't defend that in any great length, but, you know, it's elaborated upon there.
0: So how would you situate his conservatism next to like capital T traditionalism or the kind of postmodern conservatisms that you have written about?
3: Well, you know, the interesting thing is when I wrote that book, The Rise of Postmodern Conservatism, following people like Fred Jameson, I was really talking about an unconscious phenomena, right? Where people who held reactionary views or predisposed at least to reactionary views were kind of led uh, to behave in a certain way by the broader postmodern culture that's around them. And I still stand by that. But what's interesting about Dugan is Dugan is very self-consciously a postmodern conservative or postmodern traditionalist. Uh, And that's not me talking. You know, that's very well articulated in the fourth political theory. But he uses a wide variety of different terms to define uh, his political identity. Uh, Again, he associates with postmodernity sometimes, at other points, uh, kind of ethno-nationalism, at other points, traditionalism. What exactly you know he really is? I would say you know you'd have to read the work, his books, and kind of reach your own conclusions uh, about that because they're not particularly clear. But there are certain common threads uh, that consistently come through, which is that whatever else Dugan is, he's a staunch critic of liberal modernity. Uh, he thinks that there are certain aspects of left wing thought that are amenable to the kind of politics that he likes. But generally speaking, those aspects of left wing thought that he does admire are those that share with conservatism. A deep wariness or critique of liberalism and the kind of liberal outlook or the modernist outlook, right? And so, in the kind of appropriation of the left that he sometimes undertakes, it's very much a conservative reading of what you could find in Marx uh, or other people, basically, to find ammunition to target the Western world.
0: Yeah, I mean, reading Fourth Political Theory is sort of a laundry list of anything you might identify with liberal thought, from the franchise to free speech, uh, freedom of religion, atheism, women's rights, modernity, to science, progress, reason, whatever. What are his claims against modernity? Is it because, you know, when he describes Eurasianism, he describes modernity sort of espousing a false universalism. And he wants some kind of pluralism, I guess. I'm not entirely sure. Is he just saying we need something else against this totalizing vision? Or is that vision really like the target? So I guess I'm saying, is there a balance? Or is it like he really just hates modernity?
3: Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that he does. And I mean, frankly, the argument changes quite a bit, right? Uh, And we should be very clear on this. So there are some people who argue that Dugan is a serious political theorist, and he needs to be treated with a certain degree of intellectual rigor. I would agree with that he's a smart guy, but his work is really all over the place. Uh, There's no doubt a kind of almost surreal uh, quality to it, Uh, some of which I suspect is deliberate, or some of which I know is deliberate, because he says it is. But look, uh, let's just frame it this way, right? Uh, The easiest way to understand his work is exactly through the title. You know, he talks about the fourth political theory. And he argues that modernity has been characterized by the emergence of three different political responses or political theories. Liberalism, uh, which he rejects wholesale. And he insists that under no circumstances uh, is he going to endorse almost anything to do with the liberal outlook. Then there was communism, Marxism. You know, there's a lot of different synonyms you can use for that. He thinks that there's more to uh, this outlook than what you found with liberalism, in part because it does have a kind of grandiose quality to it that he sees as lacking in liberalism. And he is also deeply attracted to the Marxist critique of capitalism and capitalist individualism, uh, particularly its more consumeristic variants. But he completely rejects everything that's kind of modern about Marxism, very much in line with somebody like Martin Heidegger, right, who said that liberalism and socialism are basically metaphysically the same. They're both about who gets to build a better refrigerator. Marxists argue they do, liberals argue that they do, or the capitalists argue that they do. And the battle between them is about who's ultimately going to make the better refrigerator and rule the world on that basis, right? Dugan, for the most part, empathizes with that, where he says, we'll take a little bit of the critique of capitalism, we'll take a little bit of the grandiose politics and class struggle, but that's all that we really need. Then the last political theory uh, is fascism or Nazism. And from that, he takes quite a lot. Right, He's deeply influenced by people like Julius Evola, uh, less so Oswald Spenger, who's sometimes compared to. But one of the things that he rejects from fascism uh, is the kind of crude biological racism, that you saw espoused by the Nazis, and then later on by the Italian fascist party. Uh, And in this, he actually follows Evola, who saw the reduction of fascism to biological essentialism uh, as emblematic of the fact that fascism itself had given into the kind of vulgarity or crudity of modernity, right? That rather than being real fascists, uh, the fascists and the Nazis need to kind of explain away their irrationalist politics by saying, well, we're just doing this for scientific reasons, (laughs) pseudo-scientific reasons.
0: The fascists were too modern because they they had a place for science, basically. Yeah,
3: exactly, right? Uh, and I mean, if you think about Evola, right? Evola was a mystic uh, and a traditionalist, right? He was very critical uh, of the fascist party and the Nazi party for giving in to these biological inclinations, right? And Dugan then really tends to agree with that. He's definitely a chauvinist. I would also say a racist and a, a bigot in the worst possible sense. But he would definitely all of that along more ethno-nationalist lines, rather than the kind of biological racism that you would associate with somebody like Adolf Hitler, for example.
0: Is he an anti-Semite? I mean, when he's talking about the globalists, what does he mean?
3: That's very difficult to say. I mean, he does make reference to Israel at points in his work. At various moments, he does say certain things that really echo anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. At other points, he seems to express a certain degree of admiration for Israel as an ethno-nationalist state. And, you know, his opinion kind of wishy-washies back and forth on that, depending probably on the day, and however much vodka you drank that night.
0: (laughs) So this is something that comes up in a lot of these kind of newer, new right thinkers, kind of like rebranding of their racism. Like, it's no longer biological, it's ethno-nationalist, it's a kind of spiritual racism or something. Every time I, I hear them or read them sort of puzzling through this, I think, what is, what's the difference really? It sounds like you know, quacks like a duck, sounds like a duck, looks like a duck. I mean, do you think even it's worth considering these distinctions or is there a real distinction
3: there? I think it is. And this actually relates back to the anti-universalism that you brought up, right? What he rejects is liberal individualism and the liberal management of difference at the individualist level, where ideally a liberal society is supposed to be one where each individual is more or less allowed to do their own thing, engage in their own experiments and living, as long as they don't interfere with someone else. Now, of course, we all know that every liberal theorist in every liberal country interprets that differently. Some are more tolerant than others, but that's the basic idea. Dugan does not accept that, right? In fact, he insists that he is anything but an individualist of this sort, even if he supports a different kind of individualism, a more Heideggerian kind of individualism, so-called. But he does support uh, a certain kind of approach to difference, which is, uh, again, an ethno-nationalist approach to difference. This idea that different nations or collective organizations or collective entities have a kind of unique set of values that's distinctive to them. And that one of the problems with liberal individualism and liberal universalistic uh, individualism is that it tries to paper away these collectivist differences. And so at various points, it'll sometimes sound almost like a kind of collectivist liberal in the sense that I'll say, look, you know, and Russia has its own way of managing things like LGBTQ issues. The West has its way of managing LGBTQ issues. Who are you to interfere uh, with us? But again, this is a very, very impoverished approach to take uh, since, of course, this yearning for tolerance at the international level doesn't expand domestically or he thinks that the Russian state has every right uh, to interfere with the individual rights of its citizens and their own experiments in living if their approach uh, to life isn't consistent uh, with what he thinks Russians should be doing. So that's where you find a lot of his support for things like homophobia, anti-trans activism, that kind of thing.
0: You're listening to Darts and Letters, a show about the politics of academia, ideas, and intellectual life. We're proud to be a new member of the New Books Network. And all this summer, we're playing some highlights from our archives. But like Ren said, we are coming back with regular weekly programming this September. So if you like what you hear and you want to hear that, why don't you subscribe to our podcast? Search Darts and Letters wherever you find your podcasts or go to dartsandletters.ca. I'm curious about his kind of religious, mytho-religious view. I'm not really sure what to make of it. I know he's sort of close to the church. Then again, he has a kind of capital T tradition embrace of myth and the ancient. I may have a a quote here from the uh, fourth political theory, where he says, not only the highest supramental symbols of faith can be taken on board once again as a new shield, but so can irrational aspects of cults, rites, and legends. And he goes on to say, then, all that is ancient gains value and credibility for us, I guess us being the, the, the theorists of the fourth, fourth political theory, simply by virtue of the fact that it is ancient. Ancient means good, and the more ancient, the better. I mean, what is that? What are we to make of that? I mean, what does he mean by ancient, really?
3: Yeah, so this is a very unusual argument, but one that does have a certain degree of cultural consistency to it. And to really understand this, we need to kind of go back in time a little bit. So one of the kind of fundamental features of pre-liberal thought was this belief that there was a transcendent ontological or natural order to which individuals and communities were supposed to conform. You, know, you can see this particularly in somebody like Aristotle uh, or Plato, where you know, to the degree that human societies approximated these transcendent ideals, uh, they could be called just. Almost invariably, uh, these models were hierarchical, right? or sometimes deeply hierarchical, uh, where you know there was a natural order of things, there was a natural uh, division between men and women, rulers and ruled, and as long as everyone kind of assumed their role and accepted it, things would go along pretty well. And everyone had their part to play, but it by no means was an equal part, and so by no means was it to be equally rewarded. Liberalism and then later socialism and democracy more generally challenged that view right, in a wide variety of different ways. And one of the ways that it did it was by arguing that these views were irrational, mystical anti-materialist, anti-scientific. You know, there's a huge number of different criticisms in the liberal against this. Most of which, by the way, I think are just completely devastating. There's never been a way of actually recovering uh, the argument for a transcendent order to which everything is supposed to conform that people have found intellectually defensible. But that does not mean that the far right or even uh, the kind of soft right has ever stopped yearning uh, for this kind of transcendent view to be restored. And Dugan also has this kind of yearning for a transcendent dimension to human life, that would give us kind of the pattern of human society to which we're supposed to conform, except he argues for it in a more distinctive way. And one of the ways that he argues for it is by saying, look, the postmodern theorists, many of whom we're familiar with, Michel Foucault, Gilles Deleuze, Jacques Derrida, Martin Heidegger, you name it. Martin Heidegger's not exactly a postmodern thinker, but we're rolling him in here for a reason. They've all shown that the kind of universalistic, rationalistic, scientific approaches that liberals use to demolish this transcendent view of the world they're also wrong. So why can't we just go back uh, to postulating this transcendent dimension? Now, what's different with Dugan is, of course, unlike somebody like uh, Aristotle or St. Thomas Aquinas, he can't say that these transcendent orders are actually objectively there, because that would mean conceding something back to the rationalistic tradition. But he's saying, you know, the liberals uh, were wrong in kind of arguing that their scientific materialist approach to the world uh, was just the universalistic one that we all needed to adopt. So maybe we can experiment uh, with bringing it back in these new kind of postmodern ways or reconceiving it along these postmodern dimensions. And that's where you get some of the more wacky <laughs> arguments that I'll put forward in the book. Let's just put it that way. <laughs>
0: curious about it. So he he does kind of mobilize these postmodern thinkers to his advantage yep. in the book. At the same time, the book does call, like, does attack sort of postmodern nihilism or hedonism or something like that. So what is his critique of postmodernity?
3: Well, this is a bit one that uh, you see other right-wing thinkers make, right, where uh, what you or, or I might call postmodernity, he would associate more with a kind of hypermodern attitude, right, where uh, in a liberal capitalist society, we increasingly might think that nothing matters, right, that each individual has determined their own value set uh, by which they will live, or even kind of reconceive their identity in whatever way that they wish, right? Uh, and the market and other social institutions are supposed to abet and support that. And this is seen as being in continuity uh, with the kind of liberal ethos, right, of experiments and living. Just a radicalization uh, of it that's further empowered and exacerbated by technology. So once upon a time, you know, uh, experiments and living might just mean that I'm going to be a bohemian intellectual, you know, smoke a lot of weed and. Travel around the world and do kind of what Jack Kerouac would do. But now, you know, because of technological innovations, I can even decide to do something like change my gender, right? Or at least Mm -hmm. not be gender conforming in the way that I was before. Uh, And I can use medical technology, digital technologies, and various others to engage uh, in these kind of reconstitutions of my identity that weren't available before. Uh, So they're extremely critical of this. In fact, they see it as decadent, decayed, nihilistic, you know, just utterly depraved in every way, shape, and form. Mostly because, again, it denies the existence of this kind of transcendent ordering to which we are supposed to conform,
0: so help me understand what is exactly this transcendent ordering? Like what is the normative case here? Is it a kind of Nietzschean hierarchical sort of thinking? Is there a kind of great man theory? I mean, what what exactly is the transcendent in? In Dugan thinking,
3: well, you know why settle for either or, right? <laughs> we can have them all. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I mean, th- this is one of the things that's pretty expressed in the Plorth political theory, where he says this isn't fully worked out yet. Uh, it's kind of a sketch. Where sometimes he even describes the individual chapters or sections of the book as miniature experiments, right, where he's right. kind of trying out a few different candidates uh, for providing this alternative order, none of which are argued for in an intellectually coherent manner. But probably the one that's most recurring is Heidegger, who I'm sure some of your listeners know was a very influential 20th century German philosopher. Heidegger made fundamental contributions to understanding of human phenomenology. He's had influence on everything from literary studies to computer science, but Heidegger himself was also uh, a Nazi. And for a long time, people tried to deny that this had any kind of bearing on us appreciating the more obviously virtuous parts of his work. Recent scholarship uh, and the fact that the far right has taken a shine to Heidegger again Uh, has seriously trembled this kind of hermeneutic of innocence. But one of the ways that Heidegger is understood by the far right, and I think that they're probably right about this, is Heidegger argued that, okay, look, the reality is that the liberal critique of antiquity, A, was devastating, right? And so we can't just decide we're going to go back and ignore that it ever happened. But more importantly, the liberal critique of modernity uh, and its vulgar political dimensions emerge because antiquity itself didn't have the resources to avoid mutating into this, which is also an interesting point that Nietzsche makes, right? So unlike conventional reactionaries, right? Uh, somebody like Joseph de Maistre who would say, we just need to leap back past liberal modernity and go back to you know, the medieval era or whatever. Heidegger would say, no, you know, the reality is that built into the medieval era and even built into Plato and Aristotle were the intellectual tools that were needed to eventually deconstruct them or bring about liberal modernization with all its vulgarity. So what we need is a turn towards... A new kind of inceptual thinking, a new beginning uh, in thought that is going to reject everything that's obnoxious and vulgar and permissive and egalitarian about liberal modernity, but not try to reconstitute um, society along some antiquarian dimensions. Gotta be new. And so, for this reason, Heidegger uh, could kind of position himself, weirdly enough, both as a kind of conservative and as a radical, because what he wanted was a kind of new beginning. But a new beginning that rejected everything that was modern, anti-hierarchical, permissive, egalitarian uh, about the modern world. And of course, in Heidegger's case, the candidate for that was something like Nazism. Uh, and Dugan wants something similar at a Russian level.
0: Uh, one of the things that I, I thought was interesting about the conversation that you had on your podcast with your co-hosts, and also you have mentioned it a couple times here is that Dugan is not necessarily a consistent thinker. So it, in what ways is he inconsistent? And I guess I'm, I'm particularly curious about you know, how it matters or if it matters, because that's something you sort of debated a little bit on your podcast.
3: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I have to say that I think, does it matter intellectually? Yes, it does. Uh, because what it demonstrates is that the deep inconsistencies in his work mean that there's never going to be a way to make this intellectually defensible. And I would argue if it's not going to be intellectually defensible, it can never actually be practically carried out successfully. Because what he wants, again, uh, is a kind of project where people are once radically capable of individuation, uh, but nonetheless have to conform to these grand collectivist identities, right? He wants to have an outlook that's, on the one hand, believes uh, in this transcendent dimension of life, even a mystical or spiritual dimension of life, uh, yet is resolutely skeptical, anti-universalistic, demolishes any kind of belief in grand narratives, a kind of postmodern conservatism that takes what's good about postmodernity, but at the same time transforms it into everything that it's not. Uh, And this can all seem really aesthetically exciting uh, until you realize that, frankly, it's just a bunch of bullshit, (laughs) I mean, uh, you can say that A equals B as much as you want. Uh, It never will equal B, right? (laughs) But nevertheless, and I think that Pills was right about this, having people like me point out that you can will the impossible into being as much as you want it will always remain impossible uh, isn't going to p- p- keep people from being aesthetically and politically attracted to it uh, and they are aesthetically and politically attracted to it including very intelligent people i don't want to give off the impression that this is just some kind of movement by a bunch of you know weird people on the internet right there are intellectuals out there who are well studied erudite who find this appealing And the reason they find it appealing, I think, is because it does at least offer the possibility, even if it's an impossible possibility, of an alternative to a society that they see as fundamentally vulgar, spiritually fallen, decadent, and in desperate need of replacement by people like them. That means that all of us who are committed to the modernist project, whether in its liberal or socialist variants, or in my case, you know, the liberal socialist variant, we need to do everything that we can to kind of confront this uh, and point out not just it's inconsistent, but offer a more attractive and more appealing vision. And I'd say that a lot of leftists, including myself, have spent a lot of time focusing on the first task, which is absolutely vital, by the way, we need to do that, but not enough on the second. A new vision of society that carries on the modernist project, but rejuvenates it for the 21st century.
0: To put a bookend on it, I mean, if Ukraine is the apotheosis of this vision, it is certainly an ugly one. What do you think this says of Dugin? Where does this Dugin story go
3: I, mean, I think that this really shows you the logical endpoint uh, of where this philosophy is going to wind you up. Because if you look on Facebook, where he's on Facebook, you know, uh, he's been emphatic in his support of this war, uh, spreads sometimes this really cheesy propaganda uh, about it. I mean, I saw a picture uh, on his Facebook just before we had this interview, where it's a big muscular shot of Putin like staring down things, right? Just really cliched stuff. Uh, that kind of. Runs counter to his self-positioning as you know, his kind of counter-cultural aesthetic icon. But you know most of the kind of things that you see uh, in these relentless posts about Ukraine are, isn't this exciting? Isn't this reunifying? Isn't this spiritually edifying? We're going to confront them and we're never going to give up because we're on this crusade to bring about a more spiritually attuned world, uh, which is going to require us to never back down. And my response to that is not only are the Ukrainian people suffering tremendously at these beautiful bombs that are being launched at their homes, but the Russian people, many of whom did not want this war many of whom are protesting this war, are being thrown into jail because uh, they don't exactly see the beauty in what's going on uh, when 17-year-old boys are being sent to slaughter innocent civilians. So if that's what Dugan thinks is exciting and what he thinks is beautiful, then what I think we should end on is by just saying he has really shitty taste. Like just fucking the shittiest taste you can imagine.
0: That was Dr. Matt McManus, political theorist and author of The Rise of Postmodern Conservatism. He's also a member of the podcast Kill Pod, and they recently did an episode on Dugan, which I recommend. You can find it in the show notes. And that's it for this week's episode of Darts and Letters. Our lead producer is Jay Coburn. Our managing producer is Mark Apollonio. Our marketing assistant is Ian Soudon. As always, our theme song and outro was composed by Mike Barber. Our graphic designs are by Dakota Coop, and I'm your host and editor, Gordon Kadik. You can send us feedback by emailing the show. The address is darts at citedmedia.ca, or you can tweet us at dartsandletters. This is a production of Cited Media, and we are supported by our generous patrons. You can become one of them by going to patreon.com forward slash dartsandletters.